Hello and welcome to another episode of Block Talk, presented by Theatre in the Now. I'm your host as always, Michael Block. Before we begin, a few reminders. Want to support Theatre in the Now? Head on over to patreon.com slash theatre in the now and become a patron of the website today. And remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud to never miss an episode. And as always, follow us on Twitter and visit theaterinthenow.com for the latest news, reviews, and interviews. today with Daniel Kelly talking about That True Phoenix. How are you today? I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm good. It's another beautiful spring day. Ah, uh, it's summer. Summer it's almost. It's a little warm, yeah, but <laughs> I'm just happy that we can be in shorts and sandals and yes. not have to layer up finally. Yep, no, I'm, I'm in favor of that. Yeah, I'm, I, I hate layers, I hate socks, <laughs> I hate shoes. Um, this is my time. I'm in my prime again. Great. Um, Wonderful. So how's the rehearsals going? You're about to jump in. Oh my God, they're, show they're going so great! I can't even. I can't even tell you. Um, we have like this incredible group of people. So so I, I guess before I get into I, the play is called That True Phoenix, and it's a play that I wrote. It's a play I've been dreaming about writing for many years. Um, and the company uh, Team Awesome Robot was like, Hey, hey, that's a, that's a good idea for a play, and uh, it's a play about Lorenzo De Ponte, who is. Uh, most famously Mozart's librettist for The Marriage of Figaro and for Don Giovanni and for Cosi Ventuti, but who lived this wild life of adventure where he started out uh, poor in a ghetto outside of Venice and became a teacher and became various other things that are explored in the play that I generally speak about at length and spoil the entire adventure. But it's, it's a wild story. And then he wrote this autobiography that is just full of lies that are just where everything bad that happened to him is someone else's fault, and everything good that happened to him is his fault, is his uh, is his doing, um, and it's uh, it's eventually he does come to America, and, and it's a uniquely American story to like live this wild life of adventure, but for that not to be enough, to have to lie about it in your autobiography as well. Well, very cool. I am excited to dive into that, but before we get into the okay. show. No, that's great. I, I got ahead of myself I a little know, it's bit. Perfect. I, I got excited. I think <laughs> we should learn about the man who wrote the play. Oh, sure. This guy. So, where are you from? Uh, I'm from Brooklyn. I'm a native. I'm a Brooklyn native. Um, what part? Uh, I grew up in Cobble Hill. Okay. Which is, my parents were like the first people, first like young urban professionals to be like, hey, Brooklyn. It sounds like a great idea. We'll go, we'll go over the bridge slightly. Yes. So, you grew up in Brooklyn. Yes. And how did you get involved in the world of theater? Sure. Um, I would say it was it was definitely my teachers in in middle school and in high school who were definitely I was like a weird kid who liked to do voices and tell stories, um, and uh, my teachers uh, were the ones there. There were there was great arts classes at my middle school, the Clinton School for Artists and Writers in Chelsea, and then at Edward R. Murrow High School in Deep Brooklyn. Um, we had three theater teachers, which oh, which is like un, unheard of yeah. these days. But there were three dedicated theater teachers who rotated doing plays, and um, and they were the ones who really, they, you know, that's where I had my first playwriting class, and 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 it was all downhill from there. What's the first <laughs> play that you were in? The first play I was in, um, um, I was <laughs> I was actually in 
uh, Summer and Smoke, the Tennessee Williams play okay. Summer and Smoke, all right, which all is right. not like a not like a typical first play, but we I guess we were a little outre at at, at sure. Edward R. Murrow, and I played Roger Doremus, who is like the nerdy character that like the the Tennessee Williams uh, heroine is like gonna marry before she falls for like this moldering actual leading man. But I but I'm like the guy. I like there's like a scene where I look at some photos with her. And it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, yeah, it's ridiculous that, that that was my first play. It's a beautiful play. It's ridiculous that, 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 that that's the answer to that question. So, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> so you do that play, you do a little more in high school, and then yeah. you go to college. Yeah, I went to Sarah Lawrence College for undergrad. Um, and, again, great teachers in a great environment. Um, Sarah Lawrence is great because it's not, it's not a conservatory. You get to do theater stuff, and then you get to have a whole wide range of liberal arts experiences and they have this whole uh, small classroom mentality where you get to, you know, have a lot of one-on-one attention from professors and and explore a lot of different things. So I got to explore all my different uh, whims and and fancies. And that's sort of uh, where I was always an opera nerd as a kid. Okay. Um, uh, Like I listened to it in high school and I went to the the opera, but I was actually able to take classes on on, uh, the opera and, and... on the 18th century, and speci- uh, specifically, which is where sort of the the grounding for this play sort of lies. And what was your focus at Sarah Lawrence? It was theater and English. I mean, Sarah Lawrence, you don't really have majors or sure, tests sure. or grades. <laughs> you just sort of frolic in the fields. But uh, but so, yeah, so I, I focused on theater, but I took a lot of English classes and other things like that too. So you took a couple years off before going to grad school. Uh, yeah, I did. I, I lived in the world. I had jobs. I did uh, some comedy stuff for a little bit, and I, uh, and then I went to grad school. I went. To, I got my MFA at the uh, uh, at Hunter, studying with Tina Howe, who's just the, the most wonderful woman you will ever meet. Um, just so so loving of the work, um, and so. Um, and and there isn't like a non-sincere bone in her body she's just so giving to her students um yeah and, and in between uh, undergrad and grad school i did i did some plays here and there mm-hmm. i did a whole various things and uh, but yeah but grad school was was wonderful tina howe was amazing and uh and uh, yeah and then i graduated and and then i went out into the world and set my plays places and and uh pitched pitched this play Hither and Yon and Team Awesome Robot was like, okay, we'll spend a year working on this, which is really rare. Absolutely, it's very rare. Well, before we get into how you found Team Awesome Robot, yes. how long has this idea been festering in your mind to create this fascinating play? Um, a little, little embarrassed, but um, the, uh, the, the, the autobiography, the, the main biography that, that this play is based on, which is not just the memoirs of Lenza de Ponte, but also the sort of uh, biography by Rodney Bolt um, called uh, The Librettist of Venice came out, I think, in 2006. Okay. Uh, and I think I read it um, the year after it came out, and I was just sort of captivated by the, di- the discre- discrepancy between the autobiography, which I had read, which is sort of wild and, and, and fantastical, with the biography, which is not... They don't really match up one to one necessarily in all places, um, and so that's sort of that's sort of. But but I mean, it's it's one thing to be fascinated by uh, a life that's interesting or a historical mm-hmm. moment that's interesting. It's another thing, I think, to figure out 
why you should write a play about it and why you should do that play now. Sure. Right? And so that so the pro, the process of developing this play with Team Awesome Robot is like, we have this amazing story for this guy um, about his life, um, but what... Why, who cares, right? Sure. Who cares? Why Why do this play now? And so that's been sort of what the process has been, sort of delving into what we find interesting about his life and figuring out how it applies to the world we live in. So how did you come across Team Awesome Robot? Well, uh, Chris and I have a, have a long-running joke that I've known him for many years and I don't go to anything that he has put up. I just... Well, I, that's not exactly true. Chris reviewed uh, a play of mine in The Fringe maybe... Several years ago, sure, um, and and he was like, he gave this rave review, and I was like, oh my god, I want to meet this guy, and we got a drink, and we we really you know connected, and then uh, we didn't work together for like five years, and then uh, we sort of stayed in That's touch. So rare for someone <laughs> to reach out to a critic and be like, I want to I, I get a drink with you. That doesn't happen with me often. No. Wink, wink. No. <laughs> that's, I, this is the hint. This is this is going to open up a whole new doors I, I for hope you. So this is going to be great. Uh, no, I mean it's very rare <laughs> because I'm. If you look at my rating on uh, show score, I have like a, I think right now fifty four percent positive. Okay. Which I see a lot of theater, so yeah. I have to make sure those fifty four percent. Shows are really good and worth those. Right, no, you got you got to protect your reputation. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, you got to you got to. Can't to say everything's it. great. No, no. Why would you? I mean, you, I mean, there's one show I think you probably should say is great, but yeah, I mean, but but other than that, just like not no. Absolutely. Yeah. Of course, of course. <laughs> Continue. Sorry. Uh, no, no. Um, so Chris and I stayed friends, um, and then um, and then and then you know I think either it was last year or the year before. Um, I saw him. He directed. Um, he directed a show at the Secret uh, called "The Unlikely Ascent of Sybil Stevens" by Carrie Bentley Quinn. I hope I got that right. Um, and uh, and I, th- I thought it was, I thought he did such an incredible job uh, with with that play, which I had seen uh, in a reading, um, sort of bringing that world to life. Um, and then we we ended up working together on a on a small one act play. And I feel like Chris does an amazing job. Of um, I'm I'm really I'm kind of anal and a bit of a control freak, um, and I want everything to be just so. Um, and Chris is uh, able to get something on stage that's really precise and really powerful without letting the, uh, the with, while letting the rehearsal room stay like a really organic place, sure. which is something that I really admire that I could never possibly do. I'm like, no, do the thing and do it there. There's something that he, a skill that he has in terms of room building, and and uh, and I think they call it directing. Uh, yes, I think that's the term. <laughs> um, that uh, that that is able to he's able to construct these uh, these worlds really precisely in a way that that still feels organic and fluid, and that's cool. So you mentioned that you had this rare opportunity to mm-hmm. develop this piece for a year yeah, yeah. with Chris and the team. Mm-hmm. Talk about that process. What what did you guys do? What what sure. was day one? Sure, like? sure. I, sh- I should admit the team awesome robot is not just Chris Dierickson. Yes, it's also Yvonne Hartung who is the managing director and who does an amazing job of of coordinating and 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 gives re- her thoughts on on the pieces that we're working on and and is an amazing support to all the work that we're doing. Um, and it was her idea actually. To, she she said to Chris at some point the next piece that we want to do, I want it to be something that we build from the ground up, 
Um, and so, uh, and so Chris and Chris and I work at the same office. Okay. Uh, we work at the Anti-Defamation League. Um, and, uh, we have lunch together often and he was sort of talking about some ideas for a play. And so I was like, well, I have this crazy idea that I've loved that I don't know what to do with. And I sort of pitched it to him and he was like, yes, almost immediately. Just like, yes, yes, that's the thing. And I was like, okay, uh, sure. Lots of people say like, yes. Sure, and then sure. later like, whatever. Um, and then, uh, and then we sort of developed a plan. Uh, the autobiography is, divi- is divided into four parts um, in terms of the different cities that Lorenzo Ponte lived in. So we, we wrote, a, I, I wrote sort of almost full-length plays on each of these uh, these sections of his life, and we had living room readings where we invited people to come in. We drank wine. We talked about it. We talked about like what's interesting about this. What do we want to know more about? What what about his story resonates to us now? Um, and uh, we did that for basically um, the whole, I think it was like May to September of last year. Um, and then um, and then we did a reading of all of it together. It was like 300-page play, epic day. And by the end of it, everyone was just dying um, because it was so long and there were too many jokes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, then, and, then we, and then we sort of dove, dove into that and, and really sort of started thinking about like, what is it about this guy's life that um, th- that still, even after all these months and all these readings, still sticks with us? Um, and he's really um, there's a couple things. He's really sort of lives at this time where where the American dream is being born, right? He's the same generation as uh, his friend Casanova as Ben Franklin and Alexander Hamilton, as Beaumarchais, um, as all these these men at this time who were picking themselves up from uh, various parts of society and, and through their wits, making their way in the world. Um, and at the same time, uh, unlike some of the other people, uh, he doesn't, he, he amounts to being kind of a footnote in history, right? Sure. He's sort of just somebody you know because Mozart's famous, right? right? Um, and so, and and you and you feel that really reflected in his uh, in his memoirs. And so, uh, we wanted to explore um, the 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 sort of the idea of the self-made man when the self you make is not necessarily the person who goes down in history, right? What does that mean, right? right? And and how does that reflect through? Um, and, and, and why, why did that happen? And uh, um, and yeah, and what, 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 is that, what does that mean, I suppose? Was there ever a time as you're developing the piece that mm-hmm. you're like, what if this was a musical? Hmm. No. I mean, there, there is a Lorenzo de Ponte musical that, sure. that was in Nymph, I think, a couple of years ago. But the thing is um, that de Ponte was first and foremost a poet. Number one, if we do a Lorenzo de Ponte musical, we're going to have to compete with Mozart. And, right. and you can't. He's really good. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty, he's pretty damn good. He's pretty, he's pretty good. Um, and, and number two, he's, you know, his whole life was words. Um, and we're, we want to put his story first. You sure. know, he's, he's been the background uh, to so many, in, in so many ways that we wanted to put him in the foreground. And the way to put him in the foreground is to put words first over music. So you do all these fun living room readings. Yeah. 
how much of the cast in those readings have followed through and made it to this step? Um, well, we we've had we have two members who have been with the the cast throughout. Uh, Curry Whitmire has been our Lorenzo De Ponte from the beginning, Great. and he's just he's it. Not, not not yeah, he's he's it. He's just such a he's got so much boundless energy and and humor and enthusiasm, um, and. And he's just so giving and generous. Um, and, you know, Lorenzo de Ponte as a character is can be uh, a bit of a dick. <laughs> and so you, we needed somebody who, even if, he, even if he at times is a bit of a dick, um, we needed somebody that the audience would be like, we still love you. And Curry really is, is that guy. Uh, the other person who's been with it from the beginning is uh, Samantha Fairfield Walsh, who is... Who plays a number of characters, but um, plays Lorenzo Ponte's wife Nancy. Na- Nancy is somebody who we had to sort of make up because history is shitty for women. Sure. Um, and uh, there's there are details of her life um, that exist, but but a lot of it was piecing together and working with Sam on uh, what felt right and what felt authentic, um, and and. You know, her life is... She follows Lorenzo de Ponte around for 40 years, and they have incredible adventures together. And so it was really a labor of, of joy to sort of figure out who she is and, and why she would follow this guy around for all this time and, and you know, uh, what, what was driving that. What was it like for you to want to be able to honor the history and mm-hmm. the story mm-hmm. while still making a good piece of theater mm-hmm. that's interesting for the audience to watch? Yeah, this is this is um, this is something that Chris has been really good at keeping me on track of. I I, I can get lost in the history because sure. I'm, I'm excited about this stuff. But it was important for us um, as we were going along to um, make sure that we're we're telling a story that is contemporary, that is about uh, the world we live in, um, and uh, we had sort of a. a as I'm sure everyone sort of had, we had a sort of a moment of reckoning as we were developing this thing around the time of the election. Um, because, you know, I think like a lot of, you know, New York liberals, I think we were really shocked right. by what happened. Uh, and so we had to ask ourselves, like, um, wh- is is there, wh- why, why go forward, right? Why even bother? We were, you know, we were framing... Um, the play as a sort of reflection on the American experience and the American dream and an exploration of uh, Lorenzo de Ponte as a as a as a Jewish man in the 18th century mm-hmm. um, as a marginalized person in the 18th century and drawing uh, drawing parallels to the experience of of marginalized people in in the in the present day um, and and so we felt like. Um, the election, I think, made a lot of people feel, I guess, question uh, the American hope, the American dream, um, and what that meant, what it meant to be American. And so we feel like this play kind of goes back to a moment when that that idea was being born. Sure. And and explores uh, by a sort of sideways route. Um, what that what that is, um, and and where where that comes from, and and who the who the people were who who dreamt that up. 
So this is a unique process for you. Yeah. What is your writing process like normally? Um, normally, um, um, you know, it, I guess it varies from piece to piece. Um, I I would say I have I have a crazy idea, um, and I don't tell anybody about it, um, and I write a lot. And then I tell people about it, and they're like, "That that sounds like a crazy idea." And I'm like, "No, here here's some things that we can sure. we can play with that are that are." Um, I guess I, I tend to look for little corners, little forgotten corners of the world where there's the opportunity for um, I want. I mean, it's going to sound a little corny, but it's sort of the opportunity for divinity almost. Mm-hmm. Um, most of most of my plays are about people who are obsessed with sort of things that could be written off as trivial, um, but are in in fact deeply meaningful for them, um, and sort of exploring the human experience uh, through that lens of these sort of forgotten pockets of, of of the world. Nice. Do you have a historic figure you would want to write about next? Ooh. Is there anyone on your mind? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I don't. I don't know that I can. There's. A, there's a. I mean, there. Are, there are a couple. I've. I've tried to write historical plays on a couple of different figures, and none of them have worked. So this is the first time I feel like maybe maybe it's worked. Um, I'm. A, I'm a huge Groucho Marx fan. Okay. Um, and so I've written. Tried to write a couple of plays about about Groucho, especially. Um, his later years in the, in the 1970s were really sad. Um, he as he had this uh, sort of live-in uh, girlfriend, who um, who sort of took control of his affairs. It's a beautiful story actually about him and um, Minnie's Boys was a musical in the 70s, mm-hmm. um, which was about the Marx Brothers, and Groucho Marx was a consultant on it, and um, he. Um, he would come to rehearsals and just talk and no one was going to tell the Groucho Marx to shut up. So he would just take up the whole rehearsal, telling stories, telling stories. And so the anecdote is, I don't know if it's true, maybe it is, that they hired a girl to take Groucho Marx out and sort of walk him around the block um, for for the rehearsals. And sort of at the end of the rehearsal process, uh, he proposed marriage to her. Oh, God. um, because, Because he was... You know, it was the late seventies. His brothers were dead, um, and um, he was sort of not all together with it. Um, and so there's, yeah, there's something sort of uh, majestic and tragic about this story, and, and in in a small way, um, especially with um, uh, Groucho Marx being such a, I think, emblem of of. Of, uh, of I, like entertainment in the in the early twentieth sure, century sure. and and American entertainment then. So I'm sure he's an inspiration for you. Do you have yeah. any other inspirations as an artist? Yeah, I guess I, I generally say Marx Brothers and Verdi. I mean, I, I tend to tend to to really um, I go with uh, sort of very low comedy and okay. and very sort of high concept aspirations. Um, I you know, as as a kid, I went to Shakespeare all the time. I, I I think I you know I probably went to more 
productions of Hamlet in high school than I had my <laughs> friends at the time. You know, like um, I was I was obsessed with Hamlet in high school, um, and um, I you know anything that has a huge scope, so Shakespeare and Schiller and and Kushner and and um, I love. Um, uh, Jason Groat's work and Quinion and and uh, Mac Rogers in in contemporary who just do um, huge huge plays sure. with uh, sort of giant aspirations and also there is something yeah they're, they're they're just remarkable. Who's your dream collaborator? My dream collaborator. Um, I don't know. I mean, I. I you know, I feel like this has been really a dream collaboration. I, yeah, I, I, I wrote that on I wrote that on Facebook like yesterday or the day before, so it's not something I'm just saying because this is, <laughs> you're interviewing me right now. But I think it really has been. I mean, uh, I don't know that you know spending a whole year developing uh, a play in a way that feels really organic, that feels doesn't feel rushed, that feels really true to staying in touch with the story. There was a, there was a moment before before we went into rehearsals where I wanted to change a part of the play and I wanted to make it a lot harder to do, mm-hmm. right? And I feel like most processes they would have been like, no, Daniel, that's gonna make things way <laughs> harder. And and the answer that came back to me was no, we have to do what's best. Um, and so like that's that's my dream is is people saying like do what's best regardless of how hard it is, even though we have incredibly limited resources. Absolutely. <laughs> so we're going to move into the quote-unquote fun portion. Oh, this, this. oh, the fun part. Yeah, so these are going to be a bunch of random questions. Okay. We'll see what you All right, we'll do. see what happens. What is your favorite opera? Ooh, good question. Um, so this is maybe a little complicated. Um, um, I mean, for many years... I would say that Othello is my favorite mm-hmm. opera, which is Verdi's adaptation of Othello. Um, late in his life, Verdi was just like, I'm, you know, I've done some great things. Wagner's coming along. He's doing his thing. And like the world kind of expected him maybe to be like, let the, but, but no, he like, he like fully embraced sort of both his tradition of Italian, of Italianite uh, opera and sort of the, the Wagnerian uh, Geschmelte work uh, uh uh, sort of uh, way way of working and created Otello and created Falstaff, um, uh, but Otello is really a, a remarkable work of uh, of of dramaturgy of music. It's just I mean it's impossible to do. Sure, it's, it's I mean and so that's sort of one of the excuses they give. There's never been a black Otello um, in New York at least. I think there was one in Cuba in like the '60s, but there there's never it has always been performed. So it's so it's you know you. It's an incredibly problematic work, and the excuse they give is that it's such a hard role to sing. But that isn't really an excuse. It, it, right. You know, they, they, it shouldn't. They, they, that shouldn't be what uh, what happens, even though it's an incredible work. So that's amazing, and yeah, that's been my favorite opera for many years. So nice. we'll, we'll stick with that. What is your go-to secret New York City hotspot? Ooh, oh, I don't know. Ooh, that's hard. Um. um I guess the first thing that, that it, I, I don't know if it's a hot spot. I feel like, um, what should I say? Um, the first thing that, that occurs to me 
that that is a place that I love. That I don't. I I, I, I go there. I guess when when I need something ridiculous for a theatrical endeavor, mm-hmm. right? And so there is a there's a store in the village, um, called I think it's called the Village Paper Store, um, and it is they they burned down a couple years ago and they moved to a bigger location. But it, it's it's sort of it's sort of a combination um, corner store where you can buy lotto tickets, mm-hmm. and then also like an amazing like costume and joke shop show. Oh, fun! Um, I I had to my friend asked me to write a play for his wedding. Um, and we wrote a ten-minute play, and, and somebody had to be the moon. Um, and so I was like, "Ah, oh, I need. We're going to Connecticut in in a few hours, and I need I need to get something for for someone to be the moon." And I went to this place, uh, and I was like, "Oh, I, you know, I need something like a like a moon balloon." And the guy sort of looks at me, he's like, "Moon balloon? Okay." And he sort of goes into the back, and they and they they bring out this this huge like you know crescent. Silver crescent oh moon balloon that is just inflated and beautiful, and it was just like it was perfect. It was a perfect button for this play at this guy's wedding. And, and anytime I need something crazy and insane like that, I go to this place, and it feels very New York that there's like these sort of, sort of, uh, you know, regular guys who who run it um, and who who have a d- detailed knowledge of the inventory of like <laughs> every ridiculous thing they have in that store. Um, it's crazy. It's amazing. I love that place. What is your favorite post-show bar? Oh, post-show bar. Um, um, I feel like I have many fond memories. I don't think it's there anymore. Of, of the Irish Rogue, which was in Midtown. Mm-hmm. What I had when I first graduated college, I feel like there were a lot. I have a lot of fond memories of hanging out with various groups of people um, that were like sort of the, the, the foundational moments of, um, of like my, my first being in New York after college theater experience was like drinking late in the bar and talking about plays and things. But I don't think that's there anymore. I don't know that I, I, don't know that I have uh, like a post show. I guess I'll have to find one for this show. Yeah, you will. I will. I'm, I'll, maybe someone in the cast knows something. Or something. So <laughs> I have a big loaded question for you. Big loaded question. Okay. What is the American dream? Uh-oh. Got to take a sip of water before that. Ah, what is the American dream? That's a good question. Um, I think it's something really smart to say. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I guess the American dream is the ability to, is mobility, right? Mm-hmm. Is the ability to be anyone from anywhere, um, from any standing in life. Um, and through um, your gumption alone, through your abilities, through your talents, through your intelligence, through your skill, to be able to pull yourself up and become, you know, Whatever you hope to be, right? Sure. So I think of I think Louis B. Mayer or something like that, who who showed up on Ellis Island with five dollars in his pocket and became the head of of uh, MGM or whatever. I think about you know, uh, I mean, I, I you know the 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 example in everyone's tongue is of course Alexander Hamilton Absolutely. because of, of a small show that you may have heard of. A couple um, people saw it. I think a couple people maybe saw it, but you know, I think I feel like that's the American dream, and I feel like that's what 
Lorenzo de Ponte lived, um, even though he is seen as part of sort of Mozart's world. He became he came to America and lived here for many years, for decades. Nice. So we're going to move into the pop five rapid fire. Oh, wow. So I'm going to give you five pop culture type things. Oh, no, things, pop culture. Things that may have been in the news recently. <laughs> Some things are oh, no. not necessarily. But can we, can we do 18th century? Is that? No. We well, can't. We'll, right. we'll see. So just give the first reaction, then you can explain okay. Um, okay. if you would like. So the first one is Sesame Street. Sesame Street. Oh, didn't they? They, they went to HBO recently, didn't they? That was horrible. Um, so. the, the, the Sesame, I mean, I loved Sesame Street as a child, um, and I watched it, and, and, I, and I learned lots of things. They had, I, they had, that was one of the places also, they had lots of opera singers on Sesame Street, um, and that was one of the places where you, you could see opera singers as like a little kid, like Samuel Ramey, Marilyn Horne would appear on Sesame Street and sing about like the letter L. Um, <laughs> but, but they recently went to, they, I think they moved from PBS to HBO, and, and so now only people who, who can afford to pay for HBO can see it. Which and, is terrible. And they just introduced a new character. Oh, they did. Uh, a little girl with autism. Oh wow, that's great. Yeah, so that's why that's been the news lately. Okay, cool. I, I didn't, I didn't hear about that. No. That's awesome. So number two, the NHL playoffs. Uh, Chris Eriksson is a big fan of the NHL. Who's that's directing why I had the play? To throw it in here. He he's gonna he's not. I I assume that if he was here. He would say, I love the NHL playoffs. Yes, I know would. many things about them. And he and I would get into an argument because right. he's a Devils fan and I'm a Rangers fan. Okay. Great. We're, we're doing okay right now. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, number Sorry, Chris. three. <laughs> number three is Starbucks. Starbucks. Um, uh, I mean, I guess I think about, I used to live in Crown Heights for a little bit. Um, and there's now... Uh, Starbucks on the corner of, uh, fr- uh, what is it? It's uh, Franklin and Eastern Parkway. Um, and uh, when we moved, when I moved in there right after college and when I was growing up, you know, Starbucks was the farthest place that was going to be there. It's, it's sort of a, I guess Starbucks feels to me like sort of the end of the neighborhood. I don't know. I don't know. There's, there's probably another sure. news. There's probably another news item of that. But no. when I hear Starbucks, I think, oh, neighborhood's over. Yeah. All right. Number four is Survivor. Um, like the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I got nothing. I, I, it was, it was on television. Um, it's still it, on. It, it was. It's still on television. Well, that's why I brought it up because okay. it made uh, national headlines this week. Okay, what, what happened? Um, a contestant outed another contestant as being transgender. Okay. So it's been okay. a hot button topic. And wow. I'm a diehard Survivor fan. So okay. So 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 tell me more about this. What what is what what happened? Um. So one player is in a last ditch effort to stay. Okay. And at tribal council, he was trying to allude to something and basically asked um, another player why haven't you told anyone else you are um, transgender okay and then it was a national headline because sure. you don't do that no you don't do that that's, so not, it's that's been, not okay yeah so I'm excited that it's going to continue the necessary conversation yeah absolutely no it's, it's, it's a it's a it's a good conversation to have even though it's a terrible thing to happen yes all right number five Mozart Mozart um I guess the most the most recent thing I was I'm still reading about Mozart and and uh, De Ponte as part of this, and the thing that I I was reading about 
um, this week that was interesting was was thinking about actually Mozart and the Nazis um, because um, Mozart um, was uh, co-opted by the Nazis during the Third Reich as sort of an example of German culture and what German culture can mm-hmm. aspire to in, the sa- in a similar way that Wagner was. Um, but the difference was that Mozart had worked with Lorenzo da Ponte, um, who is a converted Jew. Um, and so they had to do a lot of work to either, and, and it went one of two ways. There were some ways in terms of writing and talking about it where he was, where they used it as an opportunity to criticize him, to sort of portray him in very anti-Semitic terms. Um, and then there were other, another thing where he would, they just totally ignored him. Um, there was some sort of movie during the Third Reich that was made about it where they um, just invent another librettist. Um, Fascinating. Um, just in, in like a passing shot. Like, oh, here's random guy. Um, so I think that was an interesting thing. I mean, yeah. Um, it's not, I mean, Mozart is, is, is of course, more than that. Um, and... Um, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I can say anything that hasn't been said about about Mozart, which is why I didn't write a play about him. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, but but yeah, he's. I mean, he, um, his work is incredible, and and um, it's it's a joy to be able to to share his work uh, with my collaborators and and get people excited about his work and about opera as a, as part, as sort of an added bonus to this process. Fantastic. So what I do on the podcast is mm. I have my previous guest ask my next guest a question. Okay. So this is a question from Dominique Salerno. Okay. If you could only smell one scent for the rest mm. of your life, what would it be? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, my, first, my first instinct is cinnamon. Okay. Cinnamon. But, not, but like good cinnamon, not like, you know, um, not like. Cinnabon cinnamon. You know? I mean, like, <laughs> not artificial not, cinnamon. Not artificial cinnamon. Like actual cinnamon. Like like a mild smell. Not like right. like cinnamon. Not like you know drowning in cinnamon. Right. But like, re- you know, a reasonable amount of cinnamon. That's a nice one. All right. So now's your turn to ask oh, a question to okay. my next guest. Okay. Um, uh, let you know. Let, let's ask. Let's ask them your really hard question, right? Let's ask them what the American dream is. Great, let's do it. All right. So, if you've gotten this far in the podcast, please use hashtag Do What's Best. Uh, where can we find you on social media? Where can we find the show on social media? Oh, this is a good question. Um, I am at. Uh, I'm on Twitter as Fun with Yago, um, and uh, you can you can go to TeamAwesomeRobot.com, um, and you could go to on Twitter to Team Awesome Robot. And follow the show. Um, we're still raising a little bit of money um, to cover some expenses. So if you go to teamawesomerobot.com uh, and click the donate button, uh, you can give a little bit to the, the sort of end of our fundraising campaign to help pay for the amazing, amazing artists who are, are, are working on That True Phoenix. Well, the, That True Phoenix is playing the Access Theater April 21st to May 7th. I hope you'll join us at the show. And thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks once again to Daniel for joining me. Don't forget to visit our Patreon page for information on becoming a patron. And if you have any questions or comments, drop me a line at theaterthenow.com via our question link. Until next time, I'm Michael Block, and that was Block Talk. (laughs) 